Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, March 9th, 2017, so we're talking about energy, materials, and industrials. I'm your host, Sean O'Reilly, and today's very special episode, I'm going to have our old part, uh, podcasting partner in crime via Skype all the way from Malawi, Africa, Mr. Tyler Crow. Tyler, how is it going? Muli Bwanji, how are you doing? Very well, um, and good evening, I think. You get six, seven hours on us, something like that? Yeah, we're, I'm seven hours ahead, actually. Um, so before we uh, we started to uh, do the podcast here, you're telling me about your lovely home there. It's actually larger than your uh, former home in Washington, D.C. Yeah, you know, one of the benefits of, you know, the wife being a contractor for the U.S. government, we, we get sent overseas from time to time, and, you know, you can have some pretty good digs when you live overseas. Wow. Um, do you have um, several hundred acres and, like, you know, farm oh, no, and no, cattle? No, no, no. I'm kidding. It's not a big <laughs> – no. No, certainly not that. Um, we haven't turned into, you know, the the farmers of Africa or anything like that. We just have a – we have a decent little pad right in the capital. It's a, it's a good place to be. It's good to have land. Um, do you uh, – one of the downsides, though, you're telling me we're having to do this. Um, you know, we're, we're recording and we're doing it at an odd time, and it's because everybody there uses the cell towers for the Internet to check Facebook after they get off of work. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's – it just happens. It's, uh, you know, infrastructure here is being built out. Um, it's not quite up to standards that you would see in the United States. You know, we run on a, a mostly a 3G cellular network for internet and phone. And, you know, they're just like, think like Uber, you know, when you have surge pricing, well, basically we kind of have surge times where you kind of know everybody's going to be using internet at a certain time. Got it. So, uh, I, since I know you've been listening to the podcast since uh, leaving us a number of months ago, I have been desperate to get your thoughts on what's been going on because OPEC cut you know, production, you had guys selling assets, you had, um, I, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on Exxon's, um, what was that, $6.5 billion shale purchase from uh, the Bass family, I mean, all kinds of good stuff. Um, really well, quick- you know, we, I, I have been vacillating between irrational exuberance and irrational fear on every given day, and, you know, if you watch today, it was the last couple of days, it's well, irrational yeah. fear, because... Prices are dropping again. Everybody freak out. So oil fell, um, you know, it's, it's the ninth today. On the 7th, I think it was like 5%. Uh, I'm sorry, yesterday was 5%. Today it's 2 And it's just because of the, I think it was just under a $9 million inventory build um, here in the United States. Um, everybody was talking about 60, 70, you know, a couple of months ago this year with the OPEC cut. What do you, what's up with the shifting mood? Like, are you kind of rolling your eyes because you're an ocean away now? Like, what? how are you viewing this? Um, I, I'm kind of viewing this as a, just like declines aren't 100% linear, nor are recoveries. Um, and one of the things that makes this particular time in oil so special in terms of recoveries and things like that is we do have this, you know, we can't call it new anymore, but shale is a relatively new concept. Uh, in the oil industry. And then when you have things that are able to turn on and turn off so quickly uh, in comparison to what we have known previously, it's going to give us those times where we think we've seen production decline and we're going to start seeing the price recovery. But when you have these assets that can get turned on so quickly, it's going to make 
these things kind of happen in fits and starts. You know, we saw actually in rig counts in the United States, they more than doubled from May to December of 2016. And there was this time here from like November to January where everybody was like, yeah, we're going to drill. It's going to be great. Uh, we're going to put some assets out there because we can make some money now. And, you know, it didn't take that long before people started realizing you bring that much additional capacity on in a short time and you're going to get some inventory builds. These things are going to happen. And it's just, I think, part of the natural fits and starts that we're going to see in this cycle. But at the same time, it's it's a very uniquely American aspect of the global oil market. And if there's anything that I have learned from you know moving here a little less than a year ago and other travels in my life is that uh, this the world the global oil market is much much bigger than the United States and we can't just look at what happens on inventory data and you know couple month procedures in the United States and say this is what's going to happen you know projected for the next two years. Well, that's kind of what I wanted to get your thoughts on briefly because um, you know I saw oils drop yesterday and you know, it was like a five percent drop, it dropped from like fifty two, fifty three to like it hung out just above fifty, and now it's it's below. Um, and this, I, when I say that, I mean WTI. Obviously, Brent's a little bit higher, but um, and I was like, oh my gosh, what happened? The Saudis must have said something like, oh, we're tired of cutting already. Like I just assumed it was something like that. And all the headlines I'm seeing near and I can tell it was just because of this inventory build at um, Cushing. And it just, it's unsatisfying to me as a reason because, um, as you, to your point, just said, you know, the United States, God love us, we you know, consume 15, 16 million barrels of oil per day, but the world market is 95, 96. So when you, when you see that the United States is 16, 70% of global oil consumption, I don't I, I don't see why a build at our largest refining you know storage facilities it I don't see why that would necessitate a five percent drop in the price of crude oil on the planet earth it just doesn't it, it's unsatisfying to me yeah and it's one of those things where you, you there there's we're at this point now where you have these short mid and long cycle kind of developments in in the world of oil and if you look outside of the united states is where you start to see a little more of those mid and longer cycle investments that aren't happening and we're still seeing uh production declines take for well you know the easiest one is the punching bag of venezuela right now where you know there's oh, you're so not brutal. a lot of good things going on right there with the oil market and the political environment in general may be a product of the oil but you have that you have uh what's going uh, production declines in nigeria and a lot of other higher cost, longer tail investments are seeing declines, and those declines are likely going to keep happening, especially as you know there is this pressure from shale in the United States, and you're starting to see some other places start to fiddle with the idea of shale, like Argentina it hasn't really like brought oil to the world yet, but these things are going to you know keep that long tail rise happening for it's going to delay it for a little while longer and that's going to cause these production declines elsewhere to really bite hard and those will be the the kind of the longer thing that will bring back a recovery it just seems like this one's going to be a little bumpy and it might take a little longer got it um really quick before we move on um 
do you why does everybody focus on the United States so much with this data? Like, why isn't anybody saying you know this is seventeen percent of the oil market? Like, there's there's other consumers here. Well, uh, one of the things that the United States has that few other countries have is we have some of the most accurate, reliable, and consistent data when it comes out on this sort of stuff. When we, you know, you can look at what Saudi oil ministers say or what OPEC is saying, but we don't necessarily know if that's exactly what's going on in the ground. Like, we don't know exactly what is happening at Saudi Aramco's Gowar field, for example. Like, you know, what kind of decline rates are we seeing there? And we, we don't have an accurate picture across other nations as to, you know, how to assess the data. So there is such a large focus on American data because it's just there. It's available. It's it's how we digest it. It's um, I'm trying to think of a, a comparable example. It's like um, it's like, you know, guess the animal and you're looking at like, you know, a photo of the leg and it's like, OK, is that a horse? Is it an elephant? And it's you got this one photo and you're guessing off of it, but it doesn't look like the whole animal. Right. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I was going to say, like in baseball or basketball, if you're always watching those games, they always give the things like points, rebounds, and assists. But, you know, when you're watching the game, so everybody gets fixated on that data. But if you, you know, somebody who's a real big follower of the game or something like that, you're going to look at metrics like points per 100 possessions and things like that that are a little bit more advanced and give a little bit more of a picture uh, that is accurate, but it's harder to, you know, to get that data compared to what is just thrown at you all the time. Awesome. So uh, moving on here, what uh, what do you think of what's been going on in big oil? Um, I know your favorite Total's been, uh, they actually haven't been too active, but uh, what do you think of Exxon's big uh, shale buy? Um, is it the shale buy or the announcement of the $20 billion that it said it was going to invest four years ago? Um, uh, either way, well, you, you obviously I mentioned earlier up uh, earlier in the episode they made that just surprising buy of six and a half billion dollars worth right. of assets and shale. I was like, wow, playing catch up here, guys. Like, geez. Well, it, it is in a, in a way you could say catching up. Uh, actually, there was a very interesting article in the Wall Street Journal today that kind of did a discussion on it, where it's one of the things that big oil had for so long was the ability to go out and spend big money on like a deep op, deep offshore well or something like that because you know it was a little riskier but the op, you know basically the the rate of return was higher if if the if you could actually find something the right way shale is a little bit safer you know you're you're basically acknowledging that you're going to get a slightly lower rate of return because there's so many players that can do it you know if you look in the permian right now you can't you know throw a rock and not hit five producers in that area at any given moment. And so the, the rates of return aren't quite as high versus something like, you know, if I invest a billion dollars in a uh, an offshore well that can last me 30 years at more than 100,000 barrels per day, that those are the sort of investments that they used to be able to make. And in this Wall Street Journal article, they're basically saying that Exxon's playing a little bit safer route here, where they're making large investments in Permian Basin for shale, as well as petrochemical refining, you know, that midstream downstream aspect uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. Those sort of things, you know, you're never going to see the 30, 40 percent rate of returns that you might get on a, you know, that 
that perfect play in the offshore, you know, you're going to get the 20 to 25% rate of return and you can cash that check. And so with Exxon going that route, it's a little bit safer play, you know, pretty conservative. Um, and it, it makes sense in the short term, certainly for in the industry right now, if you have three or four year time horizon where you think things are going to be a little bit slower, you can make a big focus here. You can get a quick, easy, reliable payout and then start kind of building your coffers again in anticipation of something further down the road. Awesome. So uh, what would you think of uh, Shell's oil sale? Uh, I'm sorry, oil sand sale. Um, they keep uh, one. I'm surprised they still own that. I actually thought they were out. But um, yeah, what's your take? It's I think it's kind of the same. It's the same. Basically, the opposite of what ExxonMobil is doing here. Uh, Shell is unique in the sense where they knew that they had to uh, they had to sell some assets because after the acquisition of BG uh, of fifty billion dollars at least on that they they acknowledged they're like we need to sell about thirty five billion in assets uh, from the combined portfolio to kind of reset our balance sheet get things you know where we want them to actually go forward and so it when you look at the overlap of the portfolio between bg and shell they're the two things that they're going to do well more than anything else is offshore uh, drilling and lng and uh, oil sands didn't really fit into that as much and if you look at uh shell's footprint not just in the upstream but in the midstream and downstream sectors there there wasn't a lot of integration along uh, that that route of being in oil sands that was something that you know back when oil was a hundred dollars a barrel in the late knots you know 21 2011 2012 all into that range it looked attractive because heck at a hundred dollars a barrel I think I could make money here digging with a shovel um, so w when you have that it, it and today with $50 a barrel and you know that you know maybe three four five years down the road we're still going to be you know, we're not going to be back to 100, maybe, but, you know, we're going to have this protracted time where everybody's going to be looking at these shorter things. It made sense from them to, you know, cut bait with this one. They got a decent payout on it, and then they can uh, use that money elsewhere uh, to kind of right-size their portfolio and focus them on the things that they want to do. Do you think that 7% dividend yield over at Shell is uh, sustainable? Uh, that's such a tough one to really answer. Um, if they're so, if the plan that they have laid out uh, actually it can be can be done to the letter and executed, I think it can be done. If you if you look at their investment uh, or investor presentations, you know their the things that they're projecting in terms of free cash flow, it can be done, but. It's also predicated on things going right, you know, one or two things swinging the right way. One of the things that Shell has done to kind of save that or, you know, make that dividend a little more palatable for them in the time being is using a script dividend where they're paying out uh, shares of the company in exchange for cash. And so they can keep it, certainly keep it going for a while using that since there was actually a very high uptake on the script dividend when they issued it. Um, so it, it gives them some breathing room for a few years. You know, they're, they're kind of in this phase of we're trying to reshape our entire business and it's going to take us a couple of years to do it. And I think 
it may it's a little too soon to say whether or not it, it is uh, sustainable over the long term or not. Got it. So uh, I don't know uh, if you caught the show, but a couple of weeks ago, um, Taylor and I did an ep- entire episode basically on um, this uh, oil and twenty first century report put out by BP. Um, oh they, yeah, I, no, I listen to, I still listen to you guys once a week when I'm uh, when I'm over here. Yeah, we 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 would. I, I, Sometimes I, I'm shouting into the into my phone, but you know that's that's just me. No, no, you're saying it wrong. <laughs> Um, so you heard the show and I mean, BP made some bold claims as I'm sure you saw. Um, they, uh, you know, talk basically fossil fuels are fine into the 2040s. Da, 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 da. Um, was what, 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 when you listened to the show, what did you shout into your phone about? Well, there, there was a couple things that were, uh, Interesting, and one of the things that it really kind of reflected on is not just BP's, but also Exxon Mobil's um, presentations on their outlook. Both of them are, are rather ambitious, a little bullish on oil. Um, if you look at their projections, their their um, growth rates for renewables is surprisingly low, and I think that's just more of a reflection of uh, you know the oil industry still kind of trying to put their best foot forward in that regard. Um, I, I think that, you know, I, I, I have a new perspective kind of living here in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, this, I guess, what you could call is the view from the other side. Uh, I, I don't want to disparage it too much, but uh, as of right now, Malawi is considered the poorest country in the world. And so it's, it's a stark contrast uh, to what we have in the United States. And what I see here and you know some of the travels that I've done in, since I've been here is you know we can get caught up in the the day to day of you know the challenges of a place like this, but at the same time I see an immense amount of opportunity, and that opportunity is going to have to be fueled by energy some way or another. And when I see that, um, I, I see you know over the next twenty to thirty years places like sub-Saharan Africa, places like the Middle East. Um, Southeast Asia, South Asia, uh, like India, they are going to use more oil. And no matter how much we have in in the developed world, like United States, uh, Europe, Europe, that you know that Western centric kind of view, no matter how much we de- can decline our use over the next 20, 30 years, it, it's hard to see these places that are coming up, you know, bringing people into the middle class using oil, it's it's going to have a, a profound impact on the amount of oil that we need to use. Um, I, just to give a great example of this, I, I was looking at some numbers and uh, I, I, let's use a stark contrast of Nigeria and the United States. Uh, Nigeria and the United States are relatively close in terms of population, but uh, barrels per thousand uh, barrels per day consumption of oil per 1,000 people in the United States is about 62 barrels. In Nigeria, it's two. Oh man! And that just gives that gives you an idea of the scope of you know how much countries around here are going to increase their consumption over the next 20, 30 years as they develop. And when you hear numbers like that, it it really makes you think that you know as much as the United States thinks that they can reduce their oil footprint you know there's there's a lot of people waiting in line to use it 
What um, before we head out of here? Um, one of the things the t- report talked about is to be bullish on was um, solar usage, particularly in um, places that get lots of sunshine. Uh, I have to assume you have a lot of sunny days there. Um, are there lots of I solar have panels? So many sunny days here. It's <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, so are there a lot of solar panels? Basically, not yet. Um, I have one, and a couple oh my of God. my neighbors have one. Uh, you. Just like you'll see in any country, you know, like you're saying, uh, on the aggregate, it's a relatively poor country. But, you know, there is wherever you go in any country, there's going to be an upper class, an upper middle class. And you find that uh, some of the more well-off people have solar panels here as a supplement to uh, the uh, electricity infrastructure here, which is a little shaky, uh, which is pretty common across sub-Saharan Africa because transmission distribution is – still a work in progress. Uh, it, it, it's certainly not the booming, booming industry that you'll see where we're doing these, you know, utility scale sort of operations It's a little bit more on the smaller residential scale. And so it, as promising as that sounds, it actually makes it a little bit more cost prohibitive because as we've seen in the United States, uh, that you uti- that scale of utility, uh, size solar installations makes it a little bit easier, a little bit more cost-effective versus, you you know, when you're doing one, two, or three panel installations on a residential area, uh, it becomes a little bit more expensive. So, you know, one of the challenges here on bringing something like solar and wind uh, power into the fold isn't the actual uh, stuff itself, like the panels or the, the turbines. I think one of the biggest challenges is going to be uh, the, the distribution transmission networks that are going to make it cost-effective. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, Tyler, I can't thank you enough for uh, calling in. Before we head out, I got to know, um, how's your basketball team doing? Uh, it's We're in the off season now, so uh, no. we're just going to start back. It's it's the rainy season, and so with the, all of our outdoor courts, we have to uh, we have to wait for the, the seasons to dry up. So right now we're in, uh, we're in uh, let's say, three, four days of routine. You're in the uh, off season. That's fine. Routine. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll see you in the Olympics next uh, in the next couple of years, I assume. Oh, not even close. I mean, (laughs) here's my theory on when I me playing basketball here in Malawi is every team, no matter where it needs, it needs some guy at the end of the bench waving a towel. And that is you. That is me. All right. Well, we cannot wait for uh, you to return to the United States and get back on the podcasting bench. So thanks again for calling. Ah, Thanks. And feel free to call me anytime. I can fill in if you need to. As long as it's not between the hours of 4 and 6 p.m. Malawi time. (laughs) Basically. Awesome. All right. Well, have a great one, Tyler. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Sean. And that is it for us, folks. Be sure and tune in tomorrow for the Technology Show with Dylan Lewis. Also, we want to give a special shout-out to our irreplaceable producer, Austin Morgan. And if you're a lawyer listener and have questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Just email us at industryfocus at fool.com. Once again, that is industryfocus at fool.com. And as always, people in this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against those stocks, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear on this program. Tyler Crow, I am Sean O'Reilly. Thanks for listening and full on.